Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 138 for the first half of August 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is some of the pseudoscience that has been propagating on the internet about the New Horizons spacecraft and the science that has come out of its mission to the Pluto-Charon system. This is part one of a two-parter, where this first episode will focus on some of the more basic things, such as the naming process, the data download plan, craters, and young Earth creationist claims, while part two is going to focus on some conspiracies and image anomalies. By way of background, unless you've been living in a cave, in which case, bravo for having internet access and listening to this podcast, you know that the New Horizons spacecraft made a successful fly through the Pluto-Charon system on July 14, 2015. As with anything NASA, conspiracies are bound to crop up. Before we get into them, though, I need to make a small disclaimer. I work on the mission, on the science and planning sides. Nothing I'll be talking about is secret or embargoed, and I make no representations that what I'm saying is really anything other than my own opinion based on the information that I lay out herein. As in, I don't represent my employer, I don't represent NASA, this is all my own unpaid time, etc, etc, etc. That out of the way, let's get going. First, I want to talk about the naming process, because this has been a craw in a few people's sides, including some scientists and legitimate organizations. By way of further disclaimer, I am remaining neutral on this. I'm not involved in the International Astronomical Union, and I was not involved in the New Horizons subgroup working on the nomenclature. I'm just going to tell you what's going on as I understand it. Officially, as far as most of the astronomical community is concerned, the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, is the only group that can assign official names to objects in the solar system and elsewhere. This is one of the few groups that during the Cold War was able to remain politically neutral, and as such it holds on to its neutrality really, really tightly. In assigning names for objects or features, it tries to balance gender, nationality, and other things that... Um, For example, it should not invoke strong emotional response in a normal person. So you're never going to see an object named Satan, just like you're probably never going to see an object named Jesus. The names should also be somewhat pronounceable by people who speak any of the major languages on Earth, and names shouldn't be duplicated, but there are exceptions, generally made before the whole nomenclature thing got codified. They also emphasize that nomenclature is not for the purpose of honoring someone, some place, or something. Rather, it is to facilitate communication so that when one person talks about Leo Crater on Mars, we all know what they mean. Or we can look it up. Every body in the solar system has its own naming theme. For example, most moons of Saturn are named after Greco-Roman titans. Moons of Uranus are generally named after Shakespearean characters, and moons of Neptune are named after water deities. Because of the name Pluto, the IAU established that bodies around it should be named also for underworld-related deities or places or things, which is why you have moons named Charon, Hydra, Kerberos, Nyx, and Styx. Conveniently, as I learned last month, their order is alphabetical. 
the IAU also established that the theme for major features on Pluto itself should be named for deities associated with death or the underworld, names for the underworld, heroes or other explorers of the underworld, writers associated with Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, and scientists and engineers associated with Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. For Charon, it is destinations and milestones of fictional space and other exploration, fictional and mythological vessels of space and other exploration, and fictional and mythological voyagers, travelers, which the IAU website misspells, and explorers. Anything on Styx should be named after river gods, because Styx was the river in Greek mythology that took you to the underworld. Nyx is deities of night, Kerberos is dogs from literature, mythology, and history, while Hydra is legendary serpents and dragons. Seems kind of cool. As of this podcast, all names currently used on surface features on Pluto and Charon and elsewhere are preliminary or provisional and are just used by the team to facilitate communication. My understanding is that they have been submitted for approval by the IAU, but that process can take months, and the IAU can still reject any names that it would like to. I think the only name that was fast-tracked and approved was the bright heart-shaped area now known as Tombaugh Regio, named for the discoverer of Pluto, Clyde Tombaugh. All of the other names that the New Horizons team has suggested were, for interest of a short term, crowdsourced. A website was created by some people on the New Horizons team to solicit names from around the world and let people vote on them. After duplicates were removed, offensive names were removed, unpronounceable names by most people were removed, and politically sensitive names were removed, we were left with a list of names from which to choose for names the team would make provisional designations and then submit for approval to the IAU. So it's the IAU that puts the naming theme in place, then the public voted for names that the team would choose to recommend. Okay, so that's five, six minutes of background. Lots of background. On to the conspiracy and controversy. The first is the most basic one. Anytime you name something for death, you're going to get religious people upset, or at least some religious people upset. So let's get that one done and move on. Second is the name Cthulhu, and I apologize to any gamers who think that I'm mispronouncing it. That's how I'm going with the pronunciation. So Cthulhu was a character in H.P. Lovecraft's fictional works for which the dark equatorial areas of Pluto have been provisionally named. Cthulhu was by far one of the most popular names on the Naming Suggestions website. Lovecraft himself has a crater named for him on Mercury. However, there is evidence that Lovecraft was a racist. Others point out that he was just a product of his time. Others, such as myself, point out that naming something Cthulhu effectively recognizes the character, not the creator, and that it was the messenger team and the IAU uh, with Mercury when they named the crater Lovecraft that should have gotten any flack. But since they didn't, let's move on. Third is the venerable Richard C. Hoagland, who, because of his new radio program, I have a lot of material, but I'm going to focus more on most of his claims in part two rather than this part one. Richard Hoagland says that he sees signs and messages pretty much in everything. For more than seven minutes, um, roughly about one and a quarter hours into his July 24th radio program, he, Keith Laney, and his significant other, It's Complicated, Robin Falkov, discussed the naming scheme. He also discussed it elsewhere. 
One of the two claims that I'm going to address is that he says Cthulhu itself was supposed to be a giant. Since Richard sees giant buildings on Pluto, more on that in part two, he thinks that naming this feature Cthulhu was New Horizons team's way of saying that, yes indeed, there are giants there that made these giant buildings, or at least there were giants there in the past. I don't think much more needs to be said here. Uh, If you believe this, I'm not quite sure why you're listening to this podcast. The second of the two claims follows from the naming scheme for features on Sharon. Because the theme included fictional and mythological vessels of exploration and their explorers, with the number of nerds that are out there, including yours truly, it was inevitable that some names would be from Star Wars and, of course, some from Star Trek. Richard Hoagland rebranded his Mars Mission website in 1996 to the Enterprise Mission after the Star Trek theme of not splitting infinitives and boldly going where no one had gone before. Basic exploration, in other words. Twenty years later, he said in response to some of the features on Sharon being provisionally named Kirk and Spock that this was NASA's way of actually giving a nod not to Star Trek, but to Richard Hoagland's Enterprise Mission itself. In other words, NASA's way of saying that Richard was right. Again, if you believe that, I'm not quite sure why you're listening to this podcast. Alright, now that I've beaten naming conspiracies to death, let's move on to another mainstream topic that's been the subject of much consternation, data downlink. First off, this is just data download. I'm not quite sure why we call it downlink, but we do, so that's that. I'm probably going to switch between the two terms over the next 10 minutes. There are really three parts to this and the conspiracy claims that come from it. First is the shortest. Why wasn't there a live feedback during the New Horizons fly through the system? Great for scientists, great for the media, etc., etc., etc. Well, two reasons. First, the concept of live, even from the moon, doesn't quite make sense since there is a two-second light travel time. From Pluto, the light travel time is four and a half hours. So, there's really no such thing as live. Second is that the spacecraft can do one of two things. It can either point its antenna at Earth and transmit data, or it can point its instruments at the Pluto-Sharon system and take data. One or the other. When you're in the place that you've traveled nine and a half years to get to, I think that you're probably going to be taking data rather than transmitting it to Earth. This is different for many outer solar system probes in the past, that that is true. In the past, like with the Voyager probes, there was an instrument platform that could be moved relative to the main body of the spacecraft that had the antenna so that you could both take data and talk to Earth at the same time. That was not the case with New Horizons. Something that moves adds risk, especially on a nine and a half year voyage in extreme cold. There is only one moving part on the New Horizons spacecraft, and it's the door to one of the instruments, which was really just open almost right after launch. And so for the last nine and a half years, nothing has moved on the spacecraft. But as context for this claim, it has been risen by none other than Richard C. Hoagland. He stated that he was mystified that there was no live radio signals from the craft, and he said that he was astounded that no news media were asking why there wasn't live radio signal during any of the NASA press conferences the day of closest approach. He then remarked that the reason that he thought of the question, as opposed to mainstream news media, was that he had a lot more experience in this sort of thing. 
Um, no. It's because other people know how to read the press briefing materials or did their homework on the spacecraft on something as simple as Wikipedia. Next up for the data downlink claims is why is it so darn slow? I've spoken at length about this in interviews recently, and I have a very lengthy blog post up on this, so I'm going to link to that in the show notes. It's actually part 6 and part 8 in my New Horizon series, so two blog posts. So I'm going to give you the very, very short version here. If you'd like more information, please go to the blog, pseudoastro.wordpress.com, or you can go to the show notes for this episode on the podcast website, which is at podcast.sjrdesign.com. Net. There you can find links to the blog entries, and it's a great website. Alright, so the short, short version. First, well, zeroth, we communicate with the spacecraft by radio signal. So to communicate with the craft, we have to be able to pick out that signal from the craft, from the random noise in our instrumentation, the radio dishes at home, as well as the random radio signals from space, and some are not that random. The spacecraft has a finite power that it can send through its antenna in a signal to Earth. That's the second point. Third is that when the main antenna was sending about 25 watts worth of power to Earth, it was received at about 3 times 10 to the negative 19 watts. To me, it's kind of astounding that we can even receive a signal that that is that weak. I mean, that's a reduction in power by a factor of what, 10 to the 21? That's ridiculous. Okay, so my own astounding uh, thoughts moving forward, uh, or notwithstanding, or whatever, and you can tell that this part is not edited, uh, part four of this process is that the signal itself can be modulated or broken up into bits. The power received in each bit is the signal strength divided by the number of bits. So, if the transmitter is transmitting, say, with 25 watts of power, a nice round number, and it wants to, say, uh, send 25 bits per second, then each bit is going to have one watt of power in it when it's initially transmitted. That means when it gets to Earth, then that's going to be reduced by a factor of, what, 10 to the 20 or 10 to the 21 or so. So... That means that if you want to send a high bitrate signal, in other words, one that gets you a lot of data really fast, there would be very, very little power in each bit, and so we wouldn't be able to pick it up. Step five is where you put these all together. So we have three 70-meter radio telescopes in the Deep Space Network on Earth. These are the only radio dishes that are big enough to actually communicate with New Horizons. Given the line-of-sight angles between the spacecraft and the radio dishes, the bitrate with which New Horizons can communicate with Earth tops out at anywhere from about 1,300 to 2,500 bits per second. Yeah, that's a maximum of 2% the speed of a 14.4K modem from the 1990s. That is really, really slow. And so, with about 60 gigabits worth of data recorded during the encounter with Pluto, and we can't downlink data continuously because the telescopes can't always see the spacecraft from Earth, and we have to negotiate for time, it's going to take up to 16 months to get all of the data back to Earth. And that's that. It's really basic physics and basic engineering. The conspiracies I've seen related to this are basically in the category of NASA's just saying it's so slow so they have time to fake the data and get rid of the alien bases. Alright, so first we had why wasn't there a live feed, and then there was why is the bitrate so slow. 
The third class of data downlink conspiracies comes, yet again, from the venerable Richard C. Hoagland. I did kind of say I'd focus more on him in part two, but I guess he's getting in in part one a lot too. I also think it's a little bit necessary to say that I really don't set out to focus on Richard. It's just that now he has his own radio program, and so he's very much more out there, and he provides a lot of false information that's easily accessible for me to get a hold of. Also, he tends to focus on planetary science, which is my research focus. So, I think I wrote it recently in a blog post that you can hardly swing a dead rat in planetary science and not hit something that Richard Hoagland has said something about. So, that's why it might seem like I tend to focus on Richard a lot. But, if you go to the podcast website, podcast.sjrdesign.net, and you go to the Tree of Podcast Episodes page, you'll see that less than 10% of the episodes have had anything to do with Richard Hoagland. So, justification that I really don't need to give aside... Here's what Richard said on August 1st, immediately followed by a clip from August 4th on his radio program, The Other Side of Midnight. We're supposed to get images seven times bigger or seven times more resolution than the ones we're seeing, but they haven't shown them to us yet for some reason. Mm -hmm. And some of them have got to be on the ground. I mean, look, in terms of mission strategy, if you have taken... Uh, let's say your whole data set in several hours during closest approach, then you turn around and start sending the data home. What would you want to send home that would be the most valuable uh, if the spacecraft died, let's say, in two days? You'd want to send your highest resolution data taken the closest to the planet that you that you basically got, Right. Sure. That would make sense to me. Yeah, because if you don't send the best data home and something happens, you've lost it forever. So that means the best high-resolution data is on the ground of all of these things, and Keith, they haven't shown it to us in over a week. In the last several weeks, even though an awful lot of that high-resolution imagery now should have been downlinked, sent four and a half hours across the solar system at the speed of light, and have been received by the DSN, the Deep Space Network, and to have then been recorded in multiple backup computer systems, all of that high-resolution imagery taken with the two telescopes on the spacecraft as the spacecraft dashed by at over 30,000 miles an hour, a little object that's two-thirds the size of the moon, 7,700 miles away, all of that should now have been downlinked and sent to the Earth so that we at least have a really good and comprehensive data set and stunning images seven times greater in resolution than anything we've seen so far, and we've seen nothing. The explanation of why there's no conspiracy in NASA isn't hiding, quote, the good stuff, as Richard and others have put it, is yet another one of practicality, multiple interests, and delegation. I've also written extensively about this on my blog, linked again in the show notes as part 8 of the New Horizons series, so I'm going to attempt to give the short, short version here. As I said, there are a couple of things going on. One of them is that once the spacecraft is through the system and still in good health, there is really no reason to suspect that it's going to die at any moment, and so you'd want to bring down the highest pixel scale images first. That's just wrong on two counts. One count is, as I just said, there's no reason to expect the craft will die now anytime soon. 
The second count is science priority. You can think of New Horizons as a laboratory, a laboratory with a couple different pieces of equipment, and you want to run science experiments to test hypotheses and gather data about many different things. The New Horizons science team came up with literally hundreds of science questions and goals, audited them many times over the course of many years, and ranked them into four groups based on broad priority. Within each group, they were also ranked by subgroup, and then again, within each subgroup, they were ranked by priority. Every single observation that New Horizons made was designed to answer these questions and linked to one or multiple goals. So the way that this works is that now that those observations are all made, the observations which will answer the top priority science questions are downlinked first. Pretty simple. And then we go down in priority. Put very, very bluntly, the best pixel scale images that cover a small, small percentage of the visible disk do not answer any of the top tier science questions, and so they are not top priority. Some of them will support some of the top tier science questions, so a few will be downlinked before the others. But a priori, when the downlink schedule for July and August were being planned literally months earlier, none of the 70 to 80 meter per pixel images were scheduled because they answer lower priority questions. Rick D. posted an analogy to my blog about this that I think works really well, so I'm going to quote from him. Any of us who have ever had to prepare a many-slide presentation to a boss or an audience and have strict time budgets under which to work do not try to work on the one best single perfect slide and worry about all the other slides later. If you run out of time, you are screwed. You work on getting the entire thing done, but your first couple passes might be at a higher or rougher level, and then, as you have time, you drill down to make it more perfect and fleshed out. That way, you accomplish the goals of communicating as much info as possible in the time you have, but if something unexpected interrupts you, you've got a lot more to show than one incomplete attempt at one perfect slide. So I think that actually sums it up pretty well. But there's another part to this, too. New Horizons has eight science instruments, which includes the main antenna, and it has four science-themed teams. Only two of those eight instruments take pictures. Well, sort of three. The data from the other five take data that we call low speed. It requires significantly less disk space, it cannot be compressed, and the low speed data also include things like basic spacecraft housekeeping, as well as header information for the high speed or images data that tell us important things like if that particular image is full of black pixels, meaning that it was off the disk of the body and so we shouldn't even bother to downlink it. I'm rambling a little bit here, so to bring this back together, data downlink is prioritized based on science question prioritization that was created over five years ago and iterated many times since then. High-res images don't answer top-tier science questions. And for the month of August, it was decided that all of the low-speed data would be brought down from the encounter so those instrument teams could get their science done more quickly, and so the other instrument teams could get header information to better plan their downlink priority. Beyond that, the downlink order is based on allocation by the principal investigator, Alan Stern, in terms of how many bits each science team can get per downlink track. And by science team, again, I mean one of the four science theme teams. 
This means that each time that we're connected to the spacecraft by the deep space network, each theme team only gets a certain fraction of the data, or of the downlink ability. The atmosphere's theme team gets their share, particles and plasma gets a share, composition gets a share, and the geology and geophysics investigation team gets a share. It only is these latter two teams that use the images for their science, so only a portion of the downlink allocation is going to go to images even after August. That's the way to be fair to your team that's made up of many different interests, and that's the way things are done. Period. But that doesn't stop some people from thinking that's wrong. I think that Richard Hoagland might have actually read my blog post on this subject, for a few days later, on August 4th, he stated this on his radio program. The idea that from from now till the end of, of August, till September, they're only going to be sending particles and fields data and, you know, the, uh, the measurements in the vicinity of, of um, Pluto in terms of non-imaging, I mean, does that really make sense? If you have a spacecraft which has all of your data loaded on the satellite state recorders on board, and at any moment something could happen, a cosmic ray hitting the wrong part of the computers, um, a mechanical breakdown in the fuel lines, you know, pressure regulator from the helium tanks, whatever, that spacecraft has a limited life, even though some people are projecting that it could last as long as 20 years. You never really know that. We've had spacecraft that have been fine one day, and, you know, people of the DSN have looked for them the next day on their regular pass, and nothing, zero, zip. Something happened, and there was no telemetry and no engineering, and we will never know what happened. That actually happened to Mars uh, Odyssey, if you'll remember. That was a spacecraft which was supposed to uh, go into orbit around Mars in the early 90s, and and they went out of communications just before a turn and a burn to go into orbit, and nothing was ever heard publicly after. Um, if if that, in fact, were to occur, then the 95% or so of the data that they took at, that's still on board would never get home. So to me, this, the, the, the rationale, the logical rationale for sending relatively low-priority data when it's the images that will tell us about the geology and the internal energy sources and the atmospheric effects and, of course, the structures, the artifacts, the ruins, that data absolutely had to have been prioritized and sent home first in the hours and hours and hours right after closest approach. So the fact that it's on the ground, by all logic, it's on the ground, and they're not showing it to us. They're not holding press conferences. They're claiming they don't have it. Means there's a reason to create a um, petition at the White House to basically demand, after 50 years, access to our damn data. No more excuses. There's really no more polite way to say this, so um, I'll just say it. Richard Hoagland is wrong. Basically, this is his argument. First, Richard Hoagland thinks that if he were managing the mission, he would send back the best pixel scale images first. Part two, therefore, that's what New Horizons must have done. Step three, but those images haven't been released. Step four, therefore NASA is hiding these images because NASA is trying to figure out what all the buildings mean. Spot the flaw here? Yeah, it's that second point. All because Richard Hoagland thinks something that does not make it true. Alright, so I've been beating naming conspiracies to death and explaining the data downlink plan. Let's go to a more science claim. There are no craters. 
Despite my best efforts as a creator person on the team, this still became the 2-bit headline. It's wrong. There are plenty of craters on Pluto, plenty of craters on Charon. Anyone who says that there aren't is wrong, but that's what made it into the headlines, and even my mother called me after that headline came out and was worried that I'd be out of work because there were no craters on Pluto. (sighs) Alright, what there aren't is unambiguous craters on the bright, heart-shaped region of Tombaugh Regio. What I mean by this is that the images that are on the ground are a few of the Sputnik Planum region of Tombaugh Regio at 400 meters per pixel scale. These are lossy compressed JPEG images where each JPEG compression block is 8 pixels across, or about 3.2 kilometers. This means that unless a feature is high contrast and significantly larger than 8 pixels or 3.2 kilometers, then it is unlikely that we can see it in these images. That's why we can see what looks to be convection cells because they're really, really big, like 50 kilometers across. On the team, some of us refer to this smoothing out effect of the compression as resurfacing by JPEG. This doesn't mean that the images necessarily look like crap, as some people have said that they do, and some people have said that they don't. It just means that you don't really know, because you don't know what's been smoothed over by the JPEG compression versus what's actually really smooth. So when I say that there are no unambiguous craters in the area, what I mean is that with the current quality of the images at this pixel scale, there are no obvious craters. There are some candidates, sure, but we'll have to wait for the lossless versions to be downlinked before we can say for certain. That still means that there could be multi-kilometer diameter craters in this area. We just can't tell yet. But somehow, in the 140-character press headlines, the There are no large craters in the Sputnik Planum region of Pluto on these images that we can tell, headline that I would have written, gets kind of chopped down to something like, Scientists baffled! No craters on Pluto! But besides bad headlines, there's plenty of other misconceptions and misinterpretations about the craters on Pluto. The main one that I've seen, not only on pseudoscience forums and radio, but also on real science forums, kind of goes like this. Scientists shouldn't be baffled that Pluto has relatively few craters because its orbit is inclined 17 degrees relative to the plane of the solar system, and it's that plane of the solar system where most impactors are. Alright, so I've said this before, not in this episode, so I'll say it again. Scientists, in general, are not stupid. We know this. Every model that models the impactor population at Pluto takes this into account. They take into account that the impactors are mostly ice as opposed to rock. They take into account that the impactors are likely somewhat porous. They take into account that the impactor speed is significantly less because of good old Kepler and his laws of planetary motion. And of course, we take into account Pluto's orbital elements, and we don't assume that the lunar, our moon, impact flux is going to be what we see at Pluto. But besides that, it's not entirely surprising that Pluto has so few craters. Again, it does have craters. Some of them are several hundred kilometers across. It just has perhaps fewer than some people might have predicted. In fact, it was predicted at least over a year ago that it would have relatively few craters as a consequence of sublimation and refreezing of the atmosphere. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, so I'm going to leave it at that for now. 
What is surprising is the relatively few craters on Charon, although the one decent pixel scale image with favorable sun angles for mapping craters that we have so far does show many dozen craters in one small area before we're again hit by resurfacing by JPEG. So again, Pluto perhaps has fewer craters than some people might have predicted. Charon does have fewer craters than we predicted, but Charon has more craters, we think at the moment, than Pluto, so yeah, they're craters. Scientists, unfortunately, often forget that they know lots of stuff that other people don't know, and sometimes things are taken for granted. I think, unfortunately, that when people have remarked about the surprisingly few craters observed on Pluto, that this is taking into account Pluto's orbital characteristics. It's implicit, because it's a duh point for those of us who tend to talk about this day in and day out, and we often forget to mention that this is implicit. It's not implicit for other people. Unfortunately, this gets lost not only by paranormalists and conspiracists, but also by the mainstream press and even the science press. Few Craters, though, is a good lead-in to the final set of non-mainstream claims that I'll be addressing on this episode, Young Earth Creationist Ideas. Whenever there's a major science thing in the media, I've found that it's almost like a nervous tick that many of the Young Earth Creationist outlets feel the need to remind their readers that it's all still okay, they can still wrap the science to fit their worldview that God created everything 6,000 years ago. Along the crater front, Danny Faulkner, writing for Answers in Genesis, wrote the following. Scientists have found far fewer craters than they expected. Being far from the sun, Pluto ought to be very cold and hence not have experienced recent volcanism. Any primordial heat would have long ago dissipated if the solar system were 4.5 billion years old. There ought not to be any significant geological activity sufficient to remove craters on Pluto's surface. Compounding this problem for a 4.5 billion year age for the solar system is the fact that Pluto is located in a particularly crowded part of the solar system. Therefore, Pluto ought to be undergoing impacts today at a higher rate than most other objects in other portions of the solar system. Planetary scientists who are committed to belief in a 4.5 billion year old solar system are at a complete loss to explain the lack of craters on Pluto. As I already said, Pluto has craters. So moving on, the whole way that we get our crater chronology starts from the moon, which Danny Faulkner actually acknowledges and he gives a pretty reasonable overview of the subject. We do see heavily cratered areas of Pluto. So if we see some areas that have a large number of craters relative to other areas, it just means that the one with few craters, or possibly none, is much younger. How much younger, though? If Danny wants to say that a heavily cratered area is 6,000 years old, does that mean that the Tombaugh Regio region was really only created yesterday? To bypass some more of the quote and get to the last statement, this is common among creationists, or at least young Earth creationists. So, uh, just a Quick nomenclature note, when I say creationist, I mean young earth creationist. I know that there are some creationist people who listen to this who are not young earth creationists, so I apologize if I use the shortened version. Just know that I mean young earth creationists. All right. So to bypass, this is common among creationists, God of the gaps. Set up a scenario and say someone can't explain something and then say God did it. Except we have plenty of ideas of why there may be no craters over some parts. 
One of the main ones is the atmosphere, which I mentioned before, but I'll expand on now. The atmosphere is tiny, but it does cycle. Pluto is tilted more than Uranus. So for every 124 years, that's half of Pluto's year around the sun, we have one pole that somewhat faces the sun. And for another 124 years, the other pole faces the sun. During this time, it's very likely that the ices on the surface near the sunward pole sublimate. They turn directly from a solid to a gas, and some get deposited on the pole that's in night. This gives you a surface that is literally no more than a few hundred years old. In fact, going into this encounter, I was warned that several models predicted that there may be very few craters on Pluto simply because of this process of not only ices being deposited as many, many layers of frost, but also because when they sublimate, they are literally removing that surface that had been cratered. So, some predictions going in were that Pluto may have very large, but very shallow craters, but nothing else. Obviously, that's not the case. Pluto is more interesting, but to say that we are at a complete loss to explain the lack of craters on Pluto is, well, politely, bollocks. And again, there are lots of areas of Pluto that have a lot more craters. Danny also made the argument that Charon has fewer craters than expected. Therefore, it's young as well. There's a problem if we take this approach. How can Charon be older than Pluto? If we're using the metric of craters, and Charon has more craters than Pluto, which it looks like it does, then Pluto is even younger than 6,000 years old, right? Uh, so, what is he trying to say here? That Pluto formed a few minutes before Clyde Tombaugh discovered it? Now, I'm being a little bit flippant here, but that's kind of what you have to assume. You have to, you know, things at least have to be somewhat consistent, even within your own worldview. Since I started with Danny Faulkner, I'll address another of his arguments before moving on. He argued that Pluto is outgassing nitrogen. Therefore, it's young because Pluto is a body with a finite size, and there must be some activity that's releasing the nitrogen, so it's still active, but evolutionary models say it can't be, or shouldn't be. Yes, Pluto is found to be shedding molecular nitrogen gas. Outgassing is the wrong word here. Perhaps it was an honest mistake by Danny, but it's wrong nonetheless. It's that nitrogen gas is escaping from the surface, not being outgassed from below the surface, at least that we know of yet. This is a classic young Earth creationist argument. Take the current rate for something, multiply it by 4.5 billion years, and claim it's impossible. They do that with Earth's moon, Earth's and Mercury's magnetic fields, and various other things, but those are particular ones, especially the magnetic fields, that I've blogged or podcasted about in the past. In this case, Danny didn't even do that simple math, even if the assumption of taking the current rate back through time is wrong. He didn't do the math. 500 tons per hour is a big number, and it means that very roughly 2 times 10 to the 19th kilograms over 4.5 billion years would have escaped. Again, seems like a lot, but Pluto currently weighs about 1.3 times 10 to the 22 kilograms. This means that it would have lost a mere 0.15% of its mass due to nitrogen escaping over 4.5 billion years if the current rate was the rate for the last 4.5 billion years. Just 1 to 2 tenths of 1%. Not really a problem. Next up is the Institute for Creation Research. 
While Jason Lyle has written a more recent article, it rehashes much of what Danny Faulkner wrote. Jake Hebert, or possibly Hebert, wrote an older one that offers a different twist. I do suggest reading it if you ever need an example of starting with one topic and twisting it to something completely different and still arguing wrong. Kind of like a politician who wants to answer a question that's not asked. For example, a reporter might ask, Do you think that there should be a mandatory waiting period at shelters before a stray animal can be euthanized? The politician may respond with, That's an excellent question. I love pets, especially dogs. And you know who has dogs? Mexicans. I think that we need to be stronger in our immigration policy by blocking illegal immigration from Mexico because all they're bringing into America is drugs. Yeah, okay, so that might be a little bit of a contrived scenario, although there are American politicians who say that. But yes, that is also exactly what Jake Hebert wrote in his article about Pluto. He starts out talking about Pluto. Then he says that any science that you're going to read about the New Horizons mission is going to be a secular, materialistic story without a deity, but people talking about the New Horizons spacecraft aren't going to be saying that directly because it would offend the taxpayers. But that means that we don't understand how the solar system formed, and even though New Horizons will yield information about Kuiper Belt objects, all they really are is comets. And then he inserts everything creationists have said about comets over the last several decades that they think indicates that comets prove a young solar system. Which, from my point of view, means that you can insert everything that scientists have said to rebut those trite arguments for the past several decades that proves comets don't prove that we live in a recently created solar system, including this very podcast in episode 3. There's a reason that that was my third podcast episode. It's a really easy set of young Earth creationist arguments to debunk. Finally, there was Terry Hurlbut. For those who do not have the pleasure of not knowing who this person is, he is one of the primary editors of Conservapedia. He also has an examiner.com website, and he has, along with several other very, very conservative people, another website called Conservative News and Views. Terry wrote a few posts about New Horizons. It all stems from his advocating even a fringe idea among the fringe ideas of young Earth creationists, Walter Brown's hydroplate idea, so-called because he thinks that Noah's flood was caused by Earth's plates opening up that allowed the waters of the deep to not only flood Earth, but blast enough material into space from Earth to form all of the asteroids, all of the comets, and Pluto, Charon, and their moons, as well as probably other stuff. As I said, fringe among the fringe. But somehow Terry is able to fit a lot of astronomy into this idea. For example, one of his first posts, of course, along that line of thought, said that Pluto is only as old as Noah's flood, and it was created in Noah's flood. Why, you might ask? Simple. Pluto is red. Rusty red. Therefore, it has rust. Therefore, it must have iron and was in an oxygen-rich environment to make that rust. Therefore, it came from Earth. End of story. When I sent that around among the team, one of the higher-ups on the mission, who shall remain nameless, responded with, What a simple logic train. I should have thought of that. I responded with, Much easier than your so-called science. To which he responded, Exactly. Other respondents among the team were, I thought it weighs the same as a duck. 
Another was, so we've all been wasting our time? I feel like such a fool. Another was a smiley face. But there was more from Terry. He followed up the same basic protocol as before, grabbing onto one tiny finding, and then saying that it's impossible to explain with modern science. Therefore, Pluto was launched from Earth during the flood. Your basic non-sequitur, or does-not-follow logical fallacy. In this case, the finding was carbon monoxide, or CO, ice, found in Tombaugh Regio. Terry explains this by saying that during the flood, Pluto and Charon formed by material ejected from Earth, which heated as they contracted, burning the plant matter that was also ejected during the flood. The gases released from the burning plants included carbon monoxide, which fell as quote-unquote rain, onto the surface of Pluto in what he claims is a basin that is now Tombaugh Regio. Now, I know that you, dear listener, know that I try to avoid ad hominem attacks in this podcast. But seriously, I had to fight my brain to write that paragraph. It's... It's just so ridiculous that it reads like a bad Poe or an Onion article if you didn't know who this guy really is. But it's a really good example of how science actually works, in contrast with Young Earth creationism, so it's also a good one to close out the episode. Terry tried to emphasize in his article that neither NASA, Swery, nor JHU or APL, the three institutions involved with the mission, have tried to explain the carbon monoxide ice. Therefore, we don't know now. Therefore, Terry's idea is the only one out there. The thing is, we don't have all the data taken yet, or that was taken yet. As I already explained in somewhat brief, the downlink plan about a half hour ago, the best pixel scale data that we have now is all lossy compressed, and scientists, by their nature, are very cautious about publishing hypotheses about something without doing a lot of tests of those hypotheses. And, within the mission itself, there's the general thinking that it's better to put out obvious findings now and save the possible interpretations for later, once we have more time to look at the better data and talk with more people and, of course, amongst ourselves. Put into context, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that NASA is going to put out a press release about unambiguous findings of concentrations in one area of Pluto of carbon monoxide. As in, we found it, It's in ice form, and it's concentrated in one particular area. That's a neat finding. It's probably a somewhat unexpected finding, and we could even generate a good, simple graphic to illustrate it. Great for a press release. There's simply no reason to then add unnecessarily that there are several possible models to explain it, but more data are needed. Stay tuned several months until we get that data to test it. That's kind of a downer to close out a press release. It's also not warranted when we literally had the data for less than a day when that press release came out. And I think with that said, this has been going for 47 minutes, so that about wraps up the main segment of this episode. We've gone from conspiracies about the names of stuff within the system to conspiracies about getting the data from New Horizons. Then to a little bit more science with craters that got warped, not only in the mainstream press, but also used and abused by young Earth creationists who had a few other arguments in case that one didn't stick. But none of these are valid arguments, as I explained in this episode. And in the next episode, I'll discuss some more misconceptions about the bodies and the mission itself, mostly focusing on anomaly hunting and faulty image analysis. 
This episode is coming out on August 20th, or 21st, depending on where you are in the world, even though the date stamp on the feed is August 1st. My apologies. And because of the severe lateness, I'm going to forego any other segments. As noted back in May and June, I've been extremely busy with, well, New Horizons and other work. The next episode, which will have a date stamp of August 16th, should be out in a few days, uh, as it's more New Horizons stuff that'll focus on image anomalies and other random bits and pieces that I've already blogged about. As this is coming out on the 20th slash 21st, I want to mention that I was interviewed by Steve Warner for about two hours on his Dark City radio program, which is available on his website, darkcity.fm. It's also going to be linked up in the show notes, and it airs on Art Bell's Dark Matter radio network. We talk about lots of different things, including mostly astronomy-related stuff, but also science in general. And I sometimes rambled, but I also got into a bit of discussion about how I'm sometimes torn between being a practical scientist versus a good skeptic, in terms of when should you give different ideas a certain amount of time and energy. The interview runs for just over two hours, and I've generally heard positive things from people who have listened to it, even if those people completely disagree with me. I've also been interviewed for, and will be on, episode 363 of The Reality Check, discussing New Horizons, and I'll be on the August episode of The Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast with Carl Mamer, also discussing New Horizons, but from a more conspiracy than practical science context. Now, I'm going to end this episode so I can start writing and recording the next. That wraps up this topic for the 138th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two random people that you'll never meet in real life.